When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Midnight Myth, the podcast where we talk about pop culture storytelling and all of its mythological, historical, and philosophical roots, but not necessarily this week. This week, what we're going to do is play a game. And if you've been with us before on a boomerangarang episode, then you know how much fun these are. We like to bring in a bucket or a universe of pop culture storytelling and pit its characters and villains and heroes against each other in a battle royale of surprising scenarios. And this is the best part. This week, finally, our universe, our bucket is the Buffyverse. I have to say to you guys, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is my favorite television program of all time. And Derek, my co-host here, just finished up his very first watch of the entire seven-season oeuvre of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Joss Whedon's seminal television show from the 90s and early 2000s. And so the excitement that I am feeling to be able to talk about that series on this show cannot be overstated. And if you guys are really, really good, you listeners, if... uh this boomerangarang is really well received and downloaded and shared a lot. Maybe we'll do a Buffy themed episode for next week. Yeah, maybe we'll dig into some of the themes and characters of that series next week. So I think you guys know the rules, but in case you're new here to the Midnight Myth, here's how the boomerangarang goes. We have two actual hats in front of us. Literal hats. Um, one which will have characters that Laurel and I collaborated on and decided on. These are characters exclusively from Josh Whedon's television show, The the Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I will draw a character. Laurel will draw a character. In the hat adjacent to the character hat are the scenario hats. This is where Laurel and I came up independent of each other, different scenarios, and we have to argue which character fared better in each scenario. Now, here's the kicker. You guys get to vote on who argued better for each character and scenario. All you have to do is tweet at us at at the Midnight Myth. 
Yes, which brings me to the next point. Keep uh, attuned of our Twitter and our Instagram and our social media feeds in the next couple of days. We'll post some of these questions for you to get involved and vote on who would win each of these scenarios. And we would love to hear your opinions. So like Derek said, if you want to tweet at us, tweet at The Midnight Myth on Twitter. We are on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, and we're on Facebook. You can also hit us up at our website, www.midnightmyth.com. There's a ton of extra content there, including our blog, where I have recently posted my thoughts on the upcoming Buffy reboot. It's a complicated subject, but I hope you'll spare some time to read my thoughts on it uh, because I'm working through it just like you are. So this is usually where I'd say something cocky and arrogant about how I'm going to destroy you in this boomerangarang. However, Buffy is like your thing. It's my wheelhouse. I'm going to go out and say, I don't feel cocky or arrogant, or I, I don't think this is a gimme for me. With that being said, I think we should dive right in and draw our first characters from the hat. Great. Before we even read these characters, this is your spoiler wall. This is a warning. We are going to spoil seasons one through seven of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So if you have not caught up or you need to do a rewatch, definitely do that before you listen to this episode. Derek is smiling at his character. You know what I was saying about not feeling cocky or, you know, everything? I'm going to throw that out. I'm going to destroy you round one. I have Buffy. I have Dracula. Oh, This reminds me of a very special episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer called Buffy versus Dracula. You know... Uh, you pick the scenario there, uh, the lovely Laurel. You know, we don't, we we do actually literally draw these from a hat, so we don't plan that it's going to be Buffy versus Dracula in round one. All right, so let's hear the scenario. How dare you? This is rigged. The game is rigged. The scenario is getting a suntan. Yes! <laughs> you, you. <laughs> I picked that one in the hopes You're, that one of us would have a vampire. <laughs> you are evil. Uh, yeah, so so getting a suntan is a scenario that I, I, you know, drew up knowing that, like, Half of the characters in here cannot get a suntan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, let yeah. me uh, let me start the opening argument. Why don't you? Sun doesn't kill me. End argument. I win. That's your whole argument. Uh, I mean, honestly, Buffy is a young LA fashionable woman who understands the value of good skin and also understands the value of tan as considered fashionable and the modern aesthetic yeah yeah, the modern aesthetic of beauty tan is considered to be one of them so she's going to know the right amount of time to spend in the sun she's going to know the right amount of suntan lotion to apply she's going to be spending time in the sun because she can be in the sun without it killing her unlike a vampire which can't the sun will kill them yeah yeah, um So I I think she has the kind of lifestyle that is really, really, um, really well suited to sun tanning when the time calls for it. Southern California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she is a slayer, she doesn't need that much sleep. So she can slay at night and tan during the day. And um, yeah. And did I mention that sun doesn't kill her? She also doesn't really have to worry about skin cancer because her life expectancy is like not that high because she's she a has the right S- SPF. She won't get skin cancer and she'll get a She tan. doesn't even really have to worry about it because a demon will probably kill her before she gets old enough for that. 
Um, yeah, and, no, and you Buffy, definitely I mean, drew a really great... Buffy would be great at getting a suntan. Buffy would be excellent at getting a suntan. Um, I have very little to throw back, although I do feel like choosing Buffy on this one was very much like anybody who's not a vampire could have won this one. So now Buffy is out of the running for anything that is battle oriented, which is really interesting for the rest of the game. I'm stalling because I chose Dracula. Um, so wait, wait, could Dracula be in the sun? Correct me if I'm wrong. Dracula he can or can't cannot necessarily be in the sun. Oh, that's right. It um, kills him. That's right. The sun. But kills him. okay. So here's the thing is like the modern vampire is in the image of Dracula Right. So so Dracula kind of lays out what the modern vampire is and sets the rules. But Dracula is also a myth like Dracula's everything about Dracula has been mythologized. He was Vlad the Impaler and he you know, there were rumors that he liked to uh, feed on the blood of his enemies. But like not necessarily is that true, except in the Buffy verse, it totally is. Uh, I'm working on it. Um, He's you should concede. I, I only have one thing to say, and that that is that he's a shapeshifter, and so he could shapeshift into like a younger, hotter version of himself that has a suntan. And round one easily goes okay. to Buffy over Dracula. Anybody who wants to vote for Dracula, that would be most welcome. You know, when I wrote that scenario, I'm like, man, if this is like two humans against each other, this might not be as interesting. But yeah, that was perfect. But yes, I'm really glad that that happened. So what is your character? I have Adam. Oh, okay. So Adam is the villain from season four. Yep. He's part demon, part human, part cyborg, if I recall. Yep. So this is interesting. I have the gentlemen, which are the demons from the episode Hush, who take everyone's voice and then use little minions to like mutilate and rip body parts out. Yeah. So we have season four villain versus season four villain. One is a monster of the week, but one is a um, season long arc. But one of them in the gentleman turned out to be one of the most memorable villains of the entire series. So it's a very interesting pairing. This is another scenario that I wrote. This is getting in touch with your true self and going on a fundraiser to help hungry kids in the third world. Holy crap. Okay. This okay, I'm going to start with this one. Okay, this go for is it. really interesting. Let me just read through this scenario one more time. Getting in touch with your true self, then going on a fundraiser to help hungry kids in the third world. Adam wakes up. Adam who is named after the proverbial first man from the Bible, wakes up, sees Maggie and is like mother and then kills her. Adam's primary drive from the moment that he becomes conscious and sentient as a monster who is woven together from a man, a monster, and a machine, he sets out to discover himself. He starts to disembowel human bodies to understand the workings of those bodies. He sets out to learn. That's the most interesting thing about that character is that he is constantly observing and fascinated by what makes humans humans, what makes monsters monsters, and what makes machines machines. So getting in touch with his true self is what he's all about. He's like, hey, I'm all of these three things that are incongruous, sewn together. So what must that mean about me? Now, we see Adam going on a tear and killing and destroying, but it's not that far off to imagine this 
this coming of age journey that he's on going in a different way. Or even if, you know, if he was permitted to uh, live on the earth for a lot longer, he might have seen the error of his ways and of killing and started to embrace morality. So I don't think it's totally out of line to imagine that eventually he would repent and be like, I need to help people. So I think this is very well suited to Adam as a character who is all about learning who he is and contributing to society. So I need to, I need your help on this one, Laurel, because yeah. I've only ever seen up of the episode once. I know you've seen them multiple times. The gentlemen are the episode hush. Yeah. They cast a spell so no one could speak. Yep, pretty much, yep. And then they you know, harvest organs from humans. Exactly. They're and, also fairy tale villains. So right. their influence is often felt on children. Right. Um, and they can, they then harvest those organs. All right. And then Buffy ultimately has to stop them because this is horrible. Yeah. So on the onset, it doesn't seem like the gentleman would really be into this at all. No. In fact, one might argue that they're the complete opposite of this. I would like to say that they'd like us to really ponder and ask a question. What are those organs for? Why are they harvesting them? It seems brutal. It seems <laughs> oh my barbaric God, that they would do this. But what if they're harvesting those organs, selling them on the black market to raise exorbitant amounts of money to help starving kids. How in very poor gentlemanly. That's why they're the gentlemen. In fact, what they have done, I would surmise, using their magical powers, is they have found people that through precognitive spells, that they know are gonna die in a short time anyway. So rather than let them live the next few days, they cast the spell, harvest the organ, sell the organ, and then use the money. For charity. And they did this after realizing in the Middle Ages that just taking people's speech and stealing their body parts so they could hoard them was really wrong. This was after like centuries of them doing this. They realized that being a demon is terrible. They can't stop the fact that they are fated to steal the powers of speech and harvest organs. But how could they do good with the organs? And it wasn't until modern medicine and a black market organ market first opened up that they decided that, you know, we may be the embodiment of fear and evil in the hearts of many, but at the very least, we'll feed some fucking kids. I, uh, there's a lot of storytelling and extrapolation happening here and I appreciate it, but I also love, we don't know. That's not true. I also, we don't, <laughs> we don't know. I also we love that, that you went right to the black market instead of being like, they're harvesting organs to give those organs to kids on the donor wait list, which would have been a really interesting, um, consequentialist philosophy. Well, hold on though. They're still demons. So they're not yeah. really gonna just, they can't just walk they can't up. They can't go totally straight. Yeah, they can't walk up to Jefferson hospital and be like, Hey, do you have a kid who needs this liver? We just ripped it out of Bob over there. Hashtag they, be the match. It would have to be on the black market. And then they take the profit. Cause they have to keep their demon street cred. Absolutely. Otherwise the other demons turn on them. Yeah. Well, yep. We know, we know what Adam's motivations are. He's kind of, you know, sick and twisted and wants to destroy and kill everyone because he should have never lived. But the gentleman, 
have been secretly helping people this whole time, and you can't disprove it, so I'm right. That's propaganda. Um, (laughs) Propaganda, don't listen to it. What do you think? Um, I also, just fun facts about the gentleman. They, of course, came to Joss Whedon in a dream, and they seem like creatures that we've all had dreams about before. So that's Joss Whedon tapping into, like, the, the... nightmare subconscious of all of us and the head gentleman is played by Doug Jones who is uh the amazing actor who takes on Pan in Pan's Labyrinth and uh the fish man in Shape of Water so someone that we love here on the podcast super fun facts there all right so I'm pulling my next character and I have Oz Giles Oh, wow. Okay. Oz uh, versus Giles. Your turn for the scenario or mine? I can't I think remember. think it's my turn. Okay, so Oz is a Willow's boyfriend from what, season two? Yeah, season from, three? from season two He's a through werewolf. four. And yeah. Giles is obviously Giles. He's a, a werewolf and a guitarist. Yeah, that's true. He'd be cooler if he were a drummer. So what's the scenario? Winning America's Got Talent. Oh, wow. Okay. So would you like to go first or shall I? You go first. So... Oz has a ton of talent. In fact, he oozes artist. Oz, Oz channels his rage, his lycanthropy disease, the fact that moon cycles affect him into the power and performance of making beautiful new age grunge rock music. He would have an actual chance at winning America's Got Talent Versus Giles, who doesn't have a charismatic bone in his body and is a bookworm whose only good talent is reading books and killing demons. Oz is so so naturally going to do this that the character Seth Green that played Oz went on to do talented things. But where did the actor who played Giles go? Not fair. I'm just saying, who has a better shot? The person with charisma and talent or the bookworm with a crossbow. I can't believe the blind spot that you have in front of you right now because Oz is a backing guitarist in a high school band called Dingo's Eat My Baby. Hold on. I want to rebut that. Uh-huh. Dave Grohl was a backup, was the drummer for Nirvana before Foo Fighters. He's waiting in the wing for his opportunity to lead. And if I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? Yes, it takes a magical spell for him to sing. It doesn't take a magical spell for him to sing. Giles has been playing acoustic guitar and singing at coffee houses and playing one-on-one shows for his entire life. Giles played by Anthony Stewart Head, who has one of the most amazing male voices of his generation. Is Is, that really true? Have you heard it? Have you heard him sing? One of the most amazing voices of his generation. a beautiful, beautiful voice. So there's a little hyperbole there. And he's not in the background. He is up front singing Freebird, singing at the bronze, singing at the espresso pump, and... To combat what you have said about his lack of charisma, do you not remember Ripper? This man used to be Ripper. When he was in high school, he would tear through the streets. He was a punk. He was powerful. He was hot. He's still hot, even at like 
60. I mean, I don't know how old he is, but like the man <laughs> I don't is think st- he's 60. You're very, very old and it's gross. He's so hot and like that episode Band Candy where he's like listening to records and smoking with Joyce, like you can't even stand it. He's got so much charisma and so much energy. And that's why ladies like Jenny Callender and Olivia still flock to this guy is because he's timeless. He's like Paul McCartney or Mick Jagger. You cannot ever take that swagger away from him, no matter how many musty old books you try to hide him behind, because he's as free as a bird now. Well, let's just hope that during the talent show where Giles is singing Freebird, that's not a full moon. Because Oz will turn into a werewolf on stage and everybody will be like, whoa, that's amazing. That dude made himself into a werewolf. That would that's be talent. pretty impressive. America has got talent. Also, Giles is not American. There you go. Another reason Oz wins. Thank you for helping me with that. He probably has a citizenship at this point. I have Willow. I have Dark Willow. Oh, man, I got the lame Willow. You got the good Willow. We were sitting here saying, should we have Willow and Dark Willow in the running? And then I was like, what if we got Willow versus Dark Willow? So as we all know, of course, Willow is Buffy's best friend and companion. And then in season six, she gets all evil and tries to uh, end all life on the planet. Yeah, her hair turns black. She gets all veiny. All right, let's hope this scenario is a nice one which will help with I'm really know, worried Willow. it's going to be one of mine. All right, so this is liberati- liberating house elves from bondage. Is this oh, a Harry God. Potter crossover? So yeah, is this, this is a Harry scenario? Potter okay. reference and uh, this refers to when Hermione Granger got all incensed about the fact that house elves were enslaved and uh, forced into unpaid labor in households where they had to wear um, pillowcases. And so she tried to liberate the house elves, but they, of course, didn't want it because they really liked being slaves. Okay, so So, I have Willow, you have Dark Willow, and we are crossing into the Harry Potterverse and we're helping house elves not become slaves. Yeah. So Willow is naturally an empathetic and kind person. She's also a person that's very technical savvy and understands the inner workings of computers, hackery in the sort of 90s, early aughts, the same time that Harry Potter takes place. She also is a very, very talented witch, but is a little pensive about her magical abilities because of the fact that she overuses them, she realizes that she gets hooked and becomes Dark Willow. When we add this up, empathy, technical acumen, and a little bit of special pizzazz, what do you have the makings of? a natural-born leader and politician. She's the kind of person that might not really want to take the lead to change, but once a cause is really there, will take this cause to its logical conclusion and has the tools to see that the cause is successful. So what do the house elves need to be liberated? They need a website. Willow can build it. What do the house elves need to be liberated? They need someone to go out there and talk to other wizards and be like, have you considered liberating your house house elves? Willow will be able to canvas and promote that cause. Willow will be able to recruit others to the cause. And then when it comes to, you know, needing a little bit of that special magic to make something happen, she is she'll be able to stand to any witch and wizard who wants to challenge her, for example, to a duel. I don't want to liberate my house elves. 
I challenge you to a duel. Okay, well, I don't really want to use my magic for this, but since you challenged me to a duel, I'm better at magic than you, so you're eviscerated. So I think when you add that that special mixture up into this scenario, is there anyone better, other than probably Hermione Granger, to liberate the house elves? I would say no, it has to be Willow. Okay, so I agree with everything that you're saying here about Willow. Um she absolutely has the skills to convince people to liberate their house elves, and she has the technical acumen, she has the gentle heart, she has everything that is needed in terms of empathy and actual um, ability to make something happen externally. Um, but what most of her attributes add up to as Willow are Hermione attributes, right? And, right, she's she's kind, she is intelligent she is independent and she is you know she's there to support uh you know the the chosen one she's hermione-ish um and i'm not trying to reduce her but i am trying to say that hermione was extremely unsuccessful in liberating the house elves and the reason that she was unsuccessful was that it wasn't about convincing people to give them clothes it wasn't about convincing people to liberate them it was about convincing the house elves to be liberated. And I don't know that Willow, on her own, has the chutzpah to convince the house elves that there is a better life outside of the home. So tell but me how Dark Willow would be better at that. Dark she Willow. Them? Well, yes, that's where I was going. What Was that if you don't get out of there, if you don't liberate your house elf, I will... Um, Remove all the skin from your body and you will die. So Dark Willow's plan, instead of destroying the world, is to torture people to give up their house elves. Yeah. And that's better. That, and that to is, torture that the better. house elves to um, to want to be free. So that, that that's better. So I will torture and kill everyone until I get what I want. Yeah. At least in my way, no one gets tortured or killed. I, and that was not part of the challenge. <laughs> I don't know. I think... I think when you take a cause such as liberating, you sort of accept a few universal rights principles such as liberty and property and happiness. And once you accept these sort of self-determinative universal principles, uh, things like torturing and killing to get the job done are in direct contrast with the original goal. Sure, but the original goal is not going to be achieved by Willow as she is because there is a level of leadership and a level of confidence that Willow most of the time doesn't have that it requires to convince people to think differently of their situation. That's I all would, I'm saying. I would agree that if I were to pluck a character from the Buffy verse to do this task, Willow would not be my first choice. Of course But not. I would say she'd be better at it than Dark Willow. All right. Well, what do you think, listeners? All right. I have pulled, for the next scenario, one of my favorite characters ever, and Derek is rejoicing over there, so he must have also pulled somebody amazing. I have picked Anya. Xander. Yes! Oh, my God. So Derek loves Xander, um, and I think there's a level of identifying with the sort of young man energy and being like, okay, I kind of was that kid in high school, which I feel about Willow and Buffy to an extent, um, but I, I love this one moment that Derek and I had while doing this rewatch of season six, where of course, spoiler alert, Xander saves the world uh, and tells Willow this 
uh, yellow crayon speech and that he loves her and it gets her to stop trying to destroy the world. And at the end of that moment when they're hugging on the bluff, Derek leans over to me and just goes, Sander. And it was a vindicating moment for him. All right, so let me read this scenario. All right. I, uh, this is not good for my character. We are Xander versus Anya. This is good for Anya. This is not good for Xander. True loves. Using cyber attacks to undermine an election and destabilize democracy. Oh, my God. So, I, yeah, I put this one in because I was watching the news while um, deciding what these scenarios okay, would be. because that's actually happening these days, that happened. isn't it? Yeah, okay. So, Xander doesn't really have a technical bone in his body. Very, very good with a you know, screwdriver and a drill. Xander's not really one to integrate himself into politics, nor would Xander really be into destabilizing a country through cyber attacks. Just in general, I think that's against his basic moral principles. Yeah, for sure. And the thing that I love about Xander is that Xander sticks up, defends, and fights for his moral principles, even against the greatest odds. So I think I have to presuppose a few things to argue this. To presuppose that A... Sanders, Xander, wow, Xander's moral makeup is not bent towards his more, I'd say, Kantian categorical imperative uh-huh. and more towards getting whatever he wants, no matter what the cost. I think there's a little bit of, of Xander in that when sometimes he's like, you know, kind of a creepy guy towards a girl, you know? Like Buffy, yeah. yeah sometimes he over-pursues things that he shouldn't. If we indulge this part of Xander and give Xander a taste of power and we assume that he's willing to sacrifice his morality to get what he wants, suddenly we start seeing the makings of a sophisticated, articulate, and intelligent villain. Now imagine young Xander frustrated about the political makeup of the society, wanting more power, and then in comes... A Russian oligarch who says, we'll give you $50 million. All you need to do is spread these emails we've already hacked. And then suddenly you have a man who's seen himself on the outside of power his whole life. The opportunity to become incredibly wealthy and the opportunity to just compromise his morality slightly and then be able to take something that he himself didn't actually hack But now that he has, he needs to disseminate. And the next thing you know, Xander becomes Secretary of State for Donald Trump. Oh, my God. He would be a really interesting, like, dummy government uh, official. Oh, Xander. And he would win people over with his... uh, And he'd go on Fox News and be like, there's a witch hunt and blah, blah, blah. Yep. But he's being funneled and paid money by the Russian oligarchs. Oh man, I, it just like breaks my heart to imagine Xander getting exploited that way. It hurt my heart making yeah, this argument. It's the only argument. argument I had. So I appreciate you for making that argument because it was not an easy draw. It, and to tell get me, t- please tell this. me why I'm wrong. So you're wrong because we we have Xander up against the love of his life, Anya slash Anyanka, who is the oldest main character on the show. She is a thousand years old and she is a vengeance demon. So she is a character who in her early life, in her like early twenties was converted from humanity to 
a, a demon. And during that time, her soul was hardened. It was changed into something that is very practical and looks at things tactically and says, how can I have the best strategic advantage in this particular circumstance? We see flashbacks of her in the Boxer Rebellion in uh, in Russia as it's burning, as the the Tsar and um, the Romanovs are are forced out and the proletariat and the Bolsheviks are taking over in a whole bunch of historical words. Um, so she has been in Russia. She's been all over the world. She has learned from all kinds of devious, dastardly people. She's literally destabilized states. And she has literally destabilized states. She has played an incredibly powerful role in all of these um, democracies coming apart or these monarchies coming apart. So she's seen a lot. And once she has restored her humanity, she almost becomes even more likely or more prone to this kind of activity of destabilizing democracies because she is so uncomfortable in her human skin and also doubly observant than she was previously. Because she has become human again, she is extremely good at pinpointing oddly specific and really interesting and powerful things about the human condition. Yeah, you're and so winning this. If she were to get behind, you know, like a Facebook ad campaign or any kind of digital marketing scam or anything like that, she'd be able to say, I completely understand human beings because they do this. And people would be like, oh my God, I never noticed that before, but that's so, that's so true. So she can exploit those little tiny facets of the human condition, which I think is key to undermining an election uh, and manipulating people and then destabilizing democracy. Yep. You, 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 you've just totally like Xander can't destabilize a country. He could, I appreciate that you tried though. He could barely hold down a job. That's the thing about the boomerang ring is, uh, and and his job is literally like restabilizing buildings and structures. So like he can't destabilize. Only thing he's good at is stabilizing. And yeah, he's like the most stable friend on the show, you know? So he's, yeah, I, I tried. It hurt making that argument. And I'm so glad that you tore so many holes into it. Let us draw our next character. Oh, I've got a good one here. So do I. All right, who do you have? Angel. Oh, I have the mayor. Angel um, versus the mayor. The mayor is what season three. Season villain? three. He's the he's the major villain of season three. Oh, it's your turn to pick a scenario there. I almost picked a scenario for you. So, the mayor versus Angel. Balancing a checkbook. Nice. God damn. <laughs> it's another one that I picked. <laughs> so okay, so I'll jump in because I feel like you've been gone first a couple of times. This is interesting because Angel and the mayor are about the same age, right? I don't know exactly how old Richard Wilkins is, but Angel is a little over 200, and I think um, Mayor Wilkins is in the centennial to bicentennial range. So they're about the same age as demons. And um, Angel's an interesting character to qualify for balancing a checkbook because you never really see him making financial decisions necessarily, but you know that he is. Uh, and I say that because this character, whose name was originally Liam, when he was you know, just a party boy in Dublin who would just drink away his savings and he was always out pursuing women and just making really awful young person decisions, as soon as he became a vampire, he realized that 
like life was really hard. He had to live off rats in the sewer. He was economically down and out. And so this is a character who's had to rebuild himself so that he has an incredible wardrobe of silk shirts. Those are not cheap. And he also is able to own a home. So he's got this incredible like Frank Lloyd Wright mansion in Southern California. That is not cheap. That's that's a major uh, expense to have in his life. And he's somehow able to afford the property taxes in Southern California. So I have to say, even though it's behind the scenes, Angel is making it work because he's a man who has rebuilt himself from nothing. And so he understands the value of balancing a checkbook more than maybe somebody who's just been doing it behind a desk as bureaucracy for you know decades and decades. And then, of course, in, in Angel, even though I haven't watched the show as closely as Buffy, in the spinoff, he runs his own small business. So this is a character who knows what he's doing when it comes to balancing a checkbook and knows why it's important. Yeah, I don't buy any of that. I think that's all very specious. And yeah, I'm, I'm not sold and I'm not convinced. You know, and the reason that I'm not convinced is that, you know, vampires, uh, when they don't have a soul, so they just take what they want and kill who is ever in their way. Yeah. They have no need to balance a checkbook. And then when he gets a soul, um, suddenly then he finds that he has to live off of the charity of others, primarily the humans that he has charmed. Um, Where's the mayor? The mayor understands what a budget is. He understands that bringing about the apocalypse requires integrating into the society writ large and uh, making sure that you can pull the levers of government in the directions that you want. This is the definition of balance and nuance and understanding fiscal matters. To be successful in a town government, one must understand what is being spent and what is not being spent, what can afford to be borrowed versus what cannot afford to be borrowed. And for all intents and purposes, this mayor is a really good mayor. He's actually excellent at being a mayor. It just so happens his goal is the end of the world, not a prosperous community. But however, if his goal were to be a prosperous community, he'd be a fantastic mayor, one we could all like, one that we could all esteem to, and one that we would all want in our own town. And his natural fiscal conservatism is part of the reason for that. Balancing a checkbook is about a philosophy. And it's about a philosophy of balance. It is a philosophy rejecting excess for the sake of excess. A vampire implicitly doesn't understand this because a vampire's need is not for balance. It is for all external pleasures at all times. I need food. I need sex. I need violence. I'm a vampire. And I spend my life in dedication to these things. Where the mayor understands a hard day's work, he understands burning the midnight oil to get something done, and the mayor also understands that only through balance and moderation can you ever achieve any lasting change, even if that change is the end of the world. The only thing that I want to call attention to is your major generalizations about vampires here, because this may be true about the stereotypical vampire that they live on excess and they live for external pleasures, but that's not necessarily true of Angel, who lives in a Once basically, basically empty 
mansion, that he doesn't fill with anything extravagant. He's not obviously eating any um, crazy foods. He's just buying pig's blood from the butcher, and he's not interested in violence. When he fights, it's because it, he, he has to, and he has to to protect Buffy for the most part. But we spend more time with Angel without a soul than with a soul. Do we? Yeah. He spends more time as a villain than as a good guy. I don't think that's true, but I will come back with time codes for all of this just to prove you wrong. Either way, the mayor wins. Uh, okay. Listeners, I want to know what you hear on this. What you think Next on this character here, I have going with the mayor, I have Faith. I have Spike. Oh, oh okay. my God. Good combination. Faith versus Spike. That is great. So we are almost done with the boomerangerang here, guys. So I have writing the great American novel, not a great novel. No, the it's the great. great American novel. You're like, I'm going to write the great American novel. And that's uh, the phrase. We yeah. have Faith versus, versus Spike. Spike. Okay. Wow. You want to go ahead? Sure. You said that as though I did want to go ahead. So. Oh, okay. Do, do you? I can no, go No, I got it. I got it. Um, the great American novel, when you start to imagine what that might be, you think Updike or you think um, Steinbeck or you think Salinger. You think these great American writers who came from, you know, a, a, a situation that maybe wasn't the the most glamorous, but wrote these stories that pierce into who we are and what we do and what we know. And when I think about who on the Buffyverse might be able to write the great American novel, it seems almost counterintuitive that I would choose someone with such a British accent. But Spike has spent a great deal of time in North America and a great deal of time in iconic places in North America, like New York City. He spent a lot of time in New York City chasing down the slayer, Nicky Wood, and he pioneered his own style, this peroxide hair, this trench coat, these black fingernails, this punk attitude that then was was stolen, of course, by Billy Idol. We have a character whose look, whose fashion, whose style of speaking, the things that everybody else is thinking is so iconic and so uh, so lasting in its image. It's hard to imagine anybody else being uh, the inspiration for the great American novel. We have somebody who's able to pierce these fabulous insights about characters like Buffy and Xander and Willow, who's able to cut down to the core of them and be like, I see everything that works inside of you, and here's this poetic thing I can say about it, and create this magnum opus that ends with a self-sacrifice. I'm actually really interested to read what Spike's novel would sound like because he's a character who kind of lives in poetic sayings, who is bathed in love all the time, eyeballs to entrails, and who feels things so deeply but yet brings this uh, incredibly American cynicism that's almost like Kerouac or like the beat poets. So I think it would be a really interesting voice to hear in storytelling. And he would tell a really wonderful story of a hundred plus years of life and traveling and coming of age throughout the world. And I just have to say, like, 
I know a lot of stuff has happened to Faith in her life, but she's not totally literate. Like, she doesn't know that many words, so I don't know that her prose would be that stimulating. Wow. So um, I've heard a lot of bullshit in my time, and let me tell you. Wow. That was some epic bullshit. Also, guys, Derek was silently trying to throw me off. He was like, making faces and gestures at me during well, this. I'm so pretty confident. I'm pretty confident that the great American writer or novel or whatever this is, the great American novel, the writer should be American and not British. Wow. So I think by virtue of the nationality of both characters, I kind of de facto win because um, my character is actually American and your character it's isn't. It's not about the writer. It's about the experience. And I'm going to also argue that uh, the great American writer should probably come from a human, uh, not from a vampire. Dogma much? Uh, No, it's not about being dogmatic. It's about the American experience is implicitly human. And it's an experience about humans trying to figure out the best way to interact with other humans. And I mean that sincerely in that I don't think when we're dealing with the non-human species that that is a voice that's going to be able to capture this. I would also say that though you, you, you know, very, uh, you know, arrogantly attacked the education level of faith, we only see part of faith's journey and the fact that she makes it out and the fact that her romantic interest is one of the most educated characters on the show and the principal. And the fact that, Faith has undoubtedly lived an amazing American experience coming from nothing, being plucked out by fate, rising to great power, and then being corrupted by this power and brought down to the lowest level only to find redemption, friends, and love. That, to me, is the most American story. And it's a story that that Faith has lived as a character. Uh, And Spike just simply flat out hasn't. Because she has lived the great American novel, when it comes to many, many years when Slayering is behind her and she sits down and she decides, you know what? No one ever thought I was smart. No one ever thought I had a way with words. But I'm going to write a story. I'm going to imagine something and I'm going to put what I imagine onto paper and what I imagine, it's going to be about my experience. It's going to blow us all the fuck away. Um, okay, great. I, I appreciate that argument. I still just don't believe that faith can string a a coherent sentence together. And I I just have to say, what is more American? What is more human than going to the end of the earth to get your soul back? Um, That's a rags to riches story. Yeah, no, that's ancient Greek. That's, that's not American, but it's human. All right. So last characters, I have Jonathan. I have Cordelia. So I guess we save the best for last. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Cordelia versus Jonathan. And what is our scenario? Directing a best picture Oscar film. Okay. Would you like to go first? Or would you, you go like me? first. So 
we know Jonathan as a guy with some marginal magical talent, but probably his best episode is when he creates a pocket reality in which he is the star of the show, and it's not really about Buffy, it's about Jonathan. And in doing so, we see that Jonathan is good at creating, manipulating a story, a narrative, and putting it into a visual medium. We also know that Jonathan is very tech-savvy. He understands the, the, the height of technology. We also know that Jonathan has an air of ruthlessness to him that makes him walk the line of dare psychopathy and villainy. All attributes that are described and used to describe some of Hollywood's most successful directors. Jonathan's not a good man. There's some redemption to his character, but he's a bad person. However, if that energy could be channeled to something correct, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Channeled towards something constructive, Jonathan would be able to create an amazing narrative. Another thing that Jonathan is very interested in and a student of, it's pop culture. It's stories that motivated and moved him. And because of this, if he took that energy, his ability to reorganize the universe via magic, but apply that to, you know, cinematography, his knowledge of pop culture and what makes a great story, his enthusiasm and love of technology, and that air of ruthlessness, but that ruthlessness not channeled against women, not channeled against Buffy, not channeled to try to take over the world, but channeled to, I'm going to make this movie or die trying, you have the next Steven Spielberg. Wow. I, I think that was a great argument for Jonathan as a good director. And if I were making the argument for him, I also would have uh, you know, chosen my endpoint as the same episode you're talking about, Superstar, where he you know, creates this alternate reality where he is the hero of his own story and he's sort of a cinematic hero. But what you don't mention about that episode in particular is that he gets where he's going by selling his soul essentially to a demon. And in the end, he is hunted down and nearly swallowed up by that demon. And if it weren't for Buffy and her friends, he would have been completely lost and that doesn't sound like leadership to me. What I worry about with Jonathan as a director is getting swallowed up by his stories, getting lost in pop culture, getting lost in that, uh, you know, that world that came before instead of coming up with inventive and innovative and new original stories. Well, and if, he is a villain. He is a bad guy. And if we are looking for someone to create inventive, original new stories, why wouldn't we look to Cordelia Chase, who is... Do you want me to answer that? No, of course not. I don't want you to keep interrupting me. Um, Cordelia is a character who shows us from the very first episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer that she is a born leader, that she is a natural at it, and that she is tapped into pop culture in a way that is so current, is not lost in these vintage references, is not lost in obscurity, but is completely finger on the pulse. She is tapped into the fact that style, that uh, that interests, that news, that the, the news cycle changes every second. And so she is constantly on top of that to maintain her status. 
and she will not be brought down from Queen B. If you are a director walking onto set, you are the king, you are the queen. You are in charge and your vision is what goes. And a character like Jonathan, who is so easily manipulated by others, isn't going to be able to assert his vision in the way that somebody like Cordelia would be able to in such a way that is tapped into the pulse of society at the moment that the flick is being directed. And the other element of this is that it's Oscar winning. What are Oscar winning movies if not finger on the pulse relevant in the time that they are created. And Cordelia knows what is relevant all the time. You're suggesting that the person who chases fads is the person that could make fads. And I don't know if I buy that. I'm not saying Cordelia chases fads. She does though. That I'm saying Cordelia sets the tone for all of Sunnydale. If she sets the tone for the Sunnydale High School, she's the mean girl, right? She doesn't set the tone for the entire society writ large. Cordelia's more than a mean girl. But it's kind of what she is as the character, you know? Like, she is the, the, the popular girl who looks down on the other girls. She's catty. She's superficial. Um, she ends up falling in love with uh, Xander for a brief time, but... You know, as soon as that's over, she's out there with a vengeance demon trying to ruin the universe with her negative intentions. She shows us again and again that she is whip smart, that she is incredibly powerful, and that she is, you know, able to stand on her own and be independent. She doesn't need sheep like Harmony following her around. She is somebody who sets her own trends and who makes her own waves. None of those things, I think, are qualifications for being a great Hollywood director. I think they are what you need to be a great Hollywood director. You need to have a visionary eye, you need to have originality, and you need to have ruthless leadership. I and don't that's see, what Cordelia has. Uh, fair enough. I don't see a visionary eye in Cordelia. I see a trendy young girl. And that's not to say that. There isn't a possible universe where Cordelia would become a visionary eye. I'm just saying Jonathan has a visionary eye. I will say right? one like, more that's, thing. That's his character. I will say one more thing. And that's that a very Cordelia-centric episode, The Wish, where she, where Anya is introduced the first time, the, the very what if that becomes the, the center of that episode is Cordelia's vision of the world. She says, I wish Buffy Summers had never been born. And she lays out something that becomes that story. I'm sorry, I have to push back on that. Wow, of course you do. Because it's not. It's just she's mad at her boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend. It's not a vision. She didn't articulate this entire universe and imagine it. All right, I'm just trying. Let's just say that's, I just have to push back. Just trying something. Well... That is it, guys, for the Boomerangarang Buffy first episode. It's been very fun. The gloves came off. Oh, they sure did. And uh, until next time, be kind. Mm-hmm.